Welcome to the Plexus Presidential Podcast Series. We are excited to have Dr. Kent Trochte, President of Lycoming College, as our guest. You know, one of the questions I always like to be able to touch upon, you know, your personal journey and really learning about the mentors that helped shape your path. Yeah, so I, um, I, Marla sent me some of the questions, and um, so I reflected upon that one. And um, part of what I um, thought about is where do I want to, how far back do I want to go, and where do I want to <laughs> start? Um, and I think I'm going to go back and, um, and um, you know, kind of begin with um, by saying that my career in higher education has really had um, three phases to it. Um, the first phase um, was as a fa faculty member, um, full-time faculty member on a tenure track, um, teaching international relations and foreign policy. That was followed by um, a second phase where I moved in to administration, um, combination of really academic and student life administration. Uh, and then, of course, this final phase um, as um, president um, of Lycoming College, and I'm now in my um, 11th year. Um, so at each one of those moments, there were different mentors. Uh, and um, I'm not going to go into extraordinary depth, but I'll, I'll just hit sure. a couple of them. Um, I, uh, when I first went to graduate school, I was in a master's degree program and, um, thought that I was probably going to use that master's degree program to become a practitioner in public policy with perhaps a focus on foreign policy. And there was a particular faculty member by the name of Mickey East, um, who saw something in me, um, invited me to co-design a course with him and teach that course in the subsequent semester. And that was that work with Mickey and his mentorship was really what catalyzed me into um, moving from a career in public policy to a career um, in higher education um, initially um, as a faculty member. Um, so um, I had that time um, as a faculty member, and um, I um, um, ended up uh, at um, uh, Clark University uh, in Worcester, Massachusetts, and um, had some uh, was what well, part of my responsibilities were to um, coordinate um, an international relations minor or track. And so I had some administrative uh, responsibilities. Um, and um, there were um, a couple of deans and colleagues, uh, and I was trying to remember their names <laughs> recently, who said to me, you're pretty good at this administrative thing. Why don't you consider the possibility of um, uh, going in that direction? And um, my wife is also an academic, and so we were balancing two career uh, family, and so um, that exploration led me to take a position at Franklin and Marshall at what was that time called Dean of Freshmen. Um, in that role, I was mentored, first of all, by a vice president by the name of Alice Drum, 
who really um, helped me um, understand how to manage a large group of people, how to move um, objectives forward in an academic environment, build consensus, um, and so on and so forth. And then um, Franklin and Marshall um, hired a fellow by the name of John Fry to become uh, president of um, Franklin and Marshall. And John said to me one day, have you ever thought about being a college president? And I know one of your questions is, when did you think about it? That was when I thought about it. So I was in my 50s before the idea of becoming a college president uh, presented itself to me. Otherwise, I was just kind of following each opportunity in my own personal evolution um, and not really with a game plan toward, I want to be a college president someday. And so these are calculated steps um, that I'm taking to prepare myself. John did say to me, however, that I have this new position called the Dean of the College which um, um, brings together responsibilities in both academic and student life. And he said, this will prepare you well, both to be a successful president and to be uh, a strong candidate. And he was right. So those are a couple of critical moments where um, individuals pointed me in directions that uh, were those kind of three phases um, of my career and led me to being here now. What now? Do you do you teach today, or do you have time? <laughs> I do not teach anymore. Um, when I was um, at Franklin and Marshall, I continued to teach during the entire time um, I was an administrator, um, including at the end when I was in a vice president's position. And what I did was I co-taught with faculty members, so that in the event that something took me away from the classroom, I would know. Um, that there would be somebody there. And the last course I taught, um, I partnered with different faculty members on the idea of citizenship. Um, And part of that was to sort of connect what we do at liberal arts colleges um, to the mission of liberal arts colleges in preparing young people to be engaged members of society. And what does that mean um, and we explored that in a lot of different ways, both highly theoretical and somewhat experiential as well. But I haven't taught for the last 11 years, unfortunately. Now, uh, Lycoming College, uh, are you a liberal arts college? We are. Yeah. And so how do you explain that to students and parents? Is that clear to them what, what a liberal arts college is today? I think it is clear to most of them. Um, what a liberal arts college um, is today. Um, and um, what we stress are um, uh, really two, three different things, I would say. Um, first of all, that um, one of the things that, and this is nothing about this is novel, but these are the themes we use. One of the things that a liberal arts college is uh, really good at is preparing students Um, to think critically across a range of problems uh, because we require you to become somewhat familiar with the humanities and somewhat familiar uh, with the sciences and social sciences and so on. Um, And what we stress is that in the world, um, technical or practical skills 
um, often evolve um, as technology or um, knowledge evolves. But what this liberal arts education does is it allows you to adapt and to be a continuous learner um, in the workplace. Um, the second thing that we stressed talk about, uh, which is, I think, particularly important in our current historical moment, is that we're also preparing you to be thoughtful and engaged um, citizens. Uh, and, um, you know, part of that, again, is learning a variety of different viewpoints, trying to understand the viewpoint of others. Um, and then that connects um, third to um, the uh, uh, stress on um, being um, having an experience uh, of interacting with people from different cultures so that in our world that is increasingly composed of people from diverse identities, you can navigate those diverse identities, whether it be in the workplace, in your community, in your neighborhood, um, or as you engage um, in our democracy. So we talk about all of those things. Um, at one point, um, and, and I haven't done this for a little while, there was a book called The Fuzzy and the Techie. Um, and I can't remember who the author is right now. Um, and, but the author was somebody who was um, a Stanford graduate um, who uh, had been very successful in the te high tech industry. Um, and um, what he argued in his book is that technological innovation requires both those who have a liberal arts, broad liberal arts education, as well as those who have technical skills. And he says those with the technical skills are generally not the innovators. The innovators are those who have a broader understanding of um, human nature, of um, uh, sometimes the... Um, um, uh, politic, how political processes impact things and economics, and that when you bring those together, mm -hmm. that's where the magic happens, and um, that both are still high uh, in high demand, even though we think about this being an increasingly technological economy that we're in. And I've used that often in talking to parents um, and students at um, admissions events. Mm -hmm. Well, and, you know, when you're meeting with students and parents at admissions events, you know, what, what are those, what is the most frequent question that you get from prospective families? And maybe it's different from a parent versus a student. <laughs> yeah, I think it probably is. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, um, I think from a parent, um, the obvious question that you get is, um, you know, how is, a, a degree in a liberal arts discipline, um, particularly if the student chooses to do something in the humanities, going to lead to a job and a career um, for, um, you know, for my son or daughter. Um, and um, I think from students, they're more concerned about, um, am I going to fit in at this place? Um, am, uh, you know, there, are there going to be opportunities that um, are interesting and will allow me to grow and explore myself and um, who I'm going to become? 
So with the parents, one of the things we, um, in terms of that parent questions, one of the things we did in our 2014 strategic plan was to rethink how we do career advising um, and um, to create a new model or a different model of career advising where we embed career advisors in clusters of disciplines and where those career advisors develop competency or expertise in answering that question for those specific disciplines. Um, and we also expect those career advisors to see students as their clients. And so when parents ask me that question, I talk to them about this model of career advising um, that we've evolved. Uh, which is not a passive sit back and wait for the student to come. Um, and an another integral element of that is working with the individual student to ensure that they get experiential opportunities that build credentials so they can um, so they can compete. And we have something called an enhanced academic experience that is basically an experiential thing like an internship or study abroad or doing research with somebody that builds a skill set. Now, with the students, you know, I don't know that um, anything that I say as a um, actually kind of 70-year-old uh, <laughs> male is really going to be persuasive to them. I think what we, what we do with our students is we provide a prospective students, we make sure they have an opportunity to interact with our current students and to hear our current students' voices. Um, and we do this all the way from our technology platform to, um, you know, to the, uh, to the campus visit. But what I do tell students is that given our size, Given the commitment of our faculty, we don't have any graduate students online, so they're committed to undergraduate. Given the richness of the opportunities we have available, you can come here and write your own story. This is the kind of place that's not cookie cutter. You're going to work with a faculty member, or a career advisor, and you're going to be able to write your own story and explore the things that you're passionate about. So that's how I try to respond to the students. Well, and, and you know, you, you spoke about the size of the institution that you're fully focused on undergraduate, residential undergraduate students. And, you know, I, I, oftentimes, I, you know, when, when diversity and equity and inclusion comes up, uh, I often hear that without belonging, it doesn't mean a lot. And so can you speak to, to how, how, what an advantage it is for Lycoming to have that small campus base where everyone's being taught in front of that, you know, faculty member and really feel like, hey, they belong. Because I would imagine, you know, you probably know most of the students and, and it's, a, it's a very intimate experience versus a state flagship, but there's nothing wrong with that, but just a far different experience. Yeah. Um, so I think more to the point is, um, um, I would be confident in saying that um, every one of my students um, knows one or more faculty members well, knows a career advisor or academic um, services advisor um, or a coach um, or a student life staff member well, and that those people are, you know, really directly impacting their lives. Yes, I do know students, but it's really the fact that you get to know um, those folks, whereas at a large flagship university, you might not ever get to know a faculty member well. Um, you might um, not ever 
step into the career services office or, um, you know, or what have you. So, um, you know, I think that's really, um, that's really the key piece of it. Now, it's interesting, the question you ask, uh, when I um, arrived um, at Lycoming in 2013, only about 12% of our students were domestic students of color. By 2018, we had 30% plus of our students as domestic students of color. Um, and um, we did that in part um, by partnering with um, both high-performing urban charter schools that are located around reform, um, if you will, urban charter schools, and then also access organizations. And in those settings, students from um, you know underrepresented backgrounds get a personalized attention that is not common in the public urban public school setting, um, where there are are huge numbers of students in the regular public school setting. Uh, and so those counselors and folks are looking for campuses like ours where there is that individual connectivity. Um, and that's you know where you get to know not just other students, but you get to know that faculty member and so on and so forth. That's all part of belonging. Now, having said that, we are not perfect. Um, and we know that we have more work to do. And it's a, it's a um, emphasis in our 2021 strategic plan to continue to progress with a commitment that all of our students um, have an opportunity to, to succeed and that all of our students are getting similar outcomes um, regardless of the background and experiences they bring. It's also the case that obviously student organizations that represent different experiences and identities are, are also part of that sense of belonging. And we've had a real um, growth in those kinds of um, student organizations. But I absolutely agree with your general premise. Um, if you are intentional about it um, and create a culture, um, size allows you to cultivate a sense of belong. Small size allows you to cultivate a sense of belonging, but you have to be intentional about it. Now, when you look at career paths, how are you engaging with the local community and with businesses to really help make sure students are career ready? Yeah. So um, that also has been um, a point of emphasis and was another prong, if you will, of that um, revision of um, career services and the emphasis on experiential um, learning that we put into both the curriculum and the co-curriculum in 2013 and 2014. And so we've been very intentional about having um, the staff in career services, as well as our faculty and our alumni folks, um, reach out and create connections um, in the local community that are part of providing our students with those experiences. One of the first things we did is we created a um, um, Wise Williamsport 
Mm. It's a wise program, Williamsport something experience. Um, and we went out and intentionally cultivated a whole full range of employers from businesses through nonprofits through government. But we've also worked beyond the immediate um, space um, to cultivate research opportunities for our students at larger universities and mm -hmm. to also cultivate through our alums employment opportunities um, well beyond the, um, the area of Williamsport. And we have funding available to help students do summer internships um, where that might be an unpaid summer internship. We've had some of our donors endow a program where we can help the student um, pursue a highly attractive unpaid um, internship. So that's very much an emphasis um, of what we're doing. Yes, locally, but also beyond the region, tapping our alumni um, network and, and other connections that we have as well. And how early in a student's path, how early can they engage in an internship? Um, we have quite a few students that um, start doing um, internships sophomore year. Okay. Um, so again, um, we have, um, you know, it's, we, we've created something called a Center for Enhanced Academic Experiences. And it has internships, doing research primarily with our faculty, although some off-campus opportunities, and also international study. All three of those things um, are, are part of it. And quite a few of the more ambitious students will start in the summer after their um, first year, or they'll get into a practicum course um, as a sophomore that um, has embedded in it some kind of internship opportunity. We think it's important for students to start connecting their career thinking and their career opportunities um, early on and not wait till, um, you know, second semester senior year where, <laughs> unfortunately, there are you know, my experience historically was there are a lot of students who came wandering in second semester, senior year, said my mom said I better get into career services because uh, she doesn't have the bedroom at home available <laughs> for me. <laughs> well, and, I, and I, I really, you know, when I hear about your career advisors and when I hear about your student life staff, who I would imagine have pretty distinct roles in that life of a of a student. Yes. Um, how do you make sure with those components and others, as we're talking, you know, how do you make sure that students, let's just take freshmen, you know, when freshmen come in, it's a new experience, you know, especially if it's first generation, it's a very new experience. Yeah. So how do you make sure that they stay the course, not just academically, but that they don't get too homesick and, 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 and kind of leave the path that they're on to graduate? Yeah. Um, so, of course, we don't get 100%, right? But we get a very high percentage that um, persist um, to that second year, somewhere in the 85% range for us um, persist to the second year. Um, some of what I don't know that a lot of what we do here is absolutely novel, but the core of what we do in the first year experience um, is a first year seminar um, taught by a faculty member. 
um, that um, has an academic component or theme to it, but which is connected to a bunch of um, uh, sort of broader component elements, like having a career advisor come in and do a workshop. Um, we have something called a passport program um, that we um, introduced where the faculty in the first year seminar program will give students extra credit if they go to a certain number of events in Williamsport, um, in uh, on campus, um, go to career services, um, take advantage um, of resources. So th there's an incentive created um, for them um, to do that. Uh, and then, um, of course, um, in the residence halls themselves, um, you know, there's the, the uh, traditional um, support um, that's there. Um, we have continued to evolve um, our kind of early alert system, if you will. Um, and we're now at a point where even on a small campus, we have a software program where um, a faculty member, a staff member, um, a resident assistant can make an entry if um, a student seems to be struggling one way or another. Um, and then our academic services deans will intervene um, early on and call that student in and try to work with them to figure out what's going on and start getting them connected to resources if our structural programs aren't working. So again, the advantages of being small, you know, it's hard, it's hard to become just a number. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, when you are, when you're out there um, trying to win students for lack of a better way to put it, you know, there's a lot of competition in higher education. Many would say it's a saturated market, especially up in the Northeast. So how do you, how do you combat that? I mean, is it a, a recruitment strategy, you know, that goes beyond the state? Is it, you know, what, what does that look like to combat, you know, the, the cliff and the competition? Yeah. So um, there's multiple elements, as you might um, imagine. Uh, when I um, took office um, in 2013, uh, we um, started a strategic planning process. Actually, we had kind of started even before I took office because it's not that far from Franklin and Marshall to Lycoming. And I was named about six months before I took office. And my predecessor was kind enough to allow me to come to uh, Lycoming and explore things um, and begin to make connections. But we did, a we did an analysis. We had data available to us from a variety of sources where we could look and see where did our prospective students, um, what were the priorities for our prospective students, what things mattered most, and how did they compare um, Lycoming to our competition? Uh, and we utilized that data to identify a number of things. Um, in our case, one of those things was um, our, our facilities were viewed as not competitive um, with our peers. The institution hadn't made significant investments in facilities for 12 or 15 years. Uh, facilities matter. When people walk on campus, if the labs look like they're 
Um, you know, like if they're from a rural area and they look and are they're from an urban area and they're or suburban area and the science labs aren't as good as the ones in their high school, well, that's going to, you know, leave um, um, a negative impression. So we've um, during my term, we've invested, which for a small campus is a lot, about $60 million in both building new facilities, but also renovating um, classrooms, science labs, residence halls, um, and the like. So, you know, that was kind of one prong um, of it. Um, the um, second prong, which we talked about a little bit already, was building those relationships that helped us um, to begin recruiting not only a more diverse student body, but students that we were never recruiting before, right? Because they weren't even aware of us. Um, and that's really a national strategy where we have um, partners in Texas and Chicago and California. Um, Texas is now the um, fifth in terms of most represented states among our student body. Um, and it's been largely done through um, that um, network um, of partnerships. Um, the other um, uh, key prong, uh, of course, is to um, you know, look at financial aid and look at affordability. Um, and are you making yourself um, affordable and are you competitive on price? Right. And um, so we had a campaign and we made a high priority in uh, with creating more endowed scholarships. And we were able to raise um, for us a good amount of money, about 27 million to endow additional scholarships. Um, and our trustees have been willing to allocate uh, more endowment draw to making sure we have competitive scholarships. Um, and then, um, you know, uh, finally, um, the international market, I'm sure you've heard this from others, I think presents an opportunity. Uh, as an institution, we were starting to make progress pre-COVID, then COVID just killed us in terms of um, being able to recruit international students. And now we're developing a kind of a post-COVID international recruitment approach, which includes um, partnering with some entities called Shorelight and Global Match that are helping to identify, seems like you've heard about them before, mm -hmm. um, helping to identify students and giving us um, better matches. And, you know, I think for a pretty much all institutions kind of like combing size, um, getting into that international market is important. And international families, especially their parents, are looking for that personalized attention that we can provide. Um, sometimes the students are looking for the glitz and glamour of the large urban area, but their parents um, are trying to direct them toward uh, what we can provide. And we've had a number of international students who great experiences and now spokespersons, um, you know, for us. Finally, we've added some new majors that uh, didn't exist before. The most recent one is um, computer science, uh, which has helped us. And one more thing, um, we uh, we had a very small number of athletic teams. We oh. added a couple of or brought back a couple of athletic teams, baseball and field hockey. We're looking at bringing back or adding a couple more. So you really got to be fighting on multiple fronts 
Um, you know, you're absolutely right. Increasing, especially in the Northeast, highly competitive. Um, and um, you can't just put all your eggs in one basket. Well, and for a school that it sounds like you've been able to to fundraise. Yes. Uh, and, and so what what is the secret sauce to successful fundraising? Hmm. You know, that's um, that's a good question. Um, and um, I think I've, I've heard some people and to some extent it was the culture here when I arrived say that um, communicating um, that we need your support or else we won't be able to do X, Y, or Z. Um, and I have found that that is exactly the wrong way um, to approach it. Um, successful fundraising absolutely requires a vision. It requires an articulation of an ambition for the institution. Um, it requires compelling ideas uh, that people um, want to invest in. I think that donors are increasingly thinking like investors um, and they have an opportunity to put their money where a difference can be made. Okay. Yeah. So when we got here, um, one of the things we said to folks is Lycoming had become a national liberal arts college, that U.S. news category, but we were like 160th or something of that sort. Um, and a vision that we articulated that people came to believe is that we had all of the ingredients and the people um, and the faculty uh, and the alumni needed to become a top 100 institution. Um, and that um, as we started to move up, we started to build momentum in that way. Um, as people started to see the physical transformations and came back to campus and saw, wow, things really look um, spectacular um, as they saw, um, you know, some of the new majors. So a compelling idea and then executing to create momentum so that people um, believe in you. That's absolutely how we approached it. We called ours toward a greater Lycoming. And it actually echoed back to an earlier historical period when the institution went from being a two-year institution to a four-year institution. Um, but we sort of took it and brought it into, um, you know, the contemporary, uh, the contemporary um, world. So um, it's all about excitement and vision and, um, and then delivering so that momentum gets created, in my view. So uh, how did you get interested or, or how did you know when you look at international relations and foreign policy, how does somebody get into that and realize this is the path I want to take? International relations and foreign policy? How did I yeah. get into that path? I mean, do you remember a teacher, yeah. whether it be in high school or what have you? There you go. You know what? I like this. So... Um, I always had, um, for some reason, an interest in politics, and I don't remember what catalyzed that interest in politics. It could have had 
something to do with the era in which I kind of came to consciousness. So um, I was old enough to, I'm old enough to remember John Kennedy as president. Um, and I'm old enough to uh, remember um, Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther Ooh. King and, you know, kind of that period of um, up until maybe the assassinations, uh, which was a period of kind of optimism um in terms of what was um, possible when i went to college i knew i had some interest in politics um and i took a course on comparative politics uh, with a professor by the name of john kemeny no wait a minute no that was the president i can't remember the professor's name now but i took took a course with a professor um on um on comparative politics and we focused on um, France, England, um, and I, a couple of um, third world countries. And I was absolutely enthralled by what we were doing in terms of, um, you know, really understanding or comparing different political systems. And then I took a course in introduction to international relations, and it sort of um, deepened from there. Uh, so, yes, absolutely. There were um, some professors that um, that moved me along. And then there was uh, my junior year, and this professor's name I do remember, David Baldwin. Um, I was beginning to gravitate toward international relations. I did an independent study with David. And um, the first draft of the paper I gave him, he tore it apart, um, but he made me better. And he deepened my thinking in my uh, in my understanding. So it was faculty members that I had in college that really um, both catalyzed and solidified that interest in international relations. Yeah, I always find it fascinating just the paths that that, yeah. that students take to find yeah. what they they love to do. And I know, I mean, even with my oldest son, who's a freshman in high school. You know, he talks about computer science, he talks about finance, but but he's still trying to understand, well, what job can I get do, right. doing those? What does that mean? And so, right. Right. you know, be, being able to do a deep dive into, you know, take classes, you know, get get to be the access that you have to faculty, to presidents, to students, et cetera. Take advantage of them while you're while you're there and alumni. And alumni and colleges that are doing this stuff well are bringing alumni back to speak to classes and um, and and then and we do a lot of that through our um, our model bringing alumni back who can really talk about not only what have their career pathways been but how is that industry or field evolving and what's going to be mm -hmm. there now you know ten years from now. Um, you know, that might be um, exciting um, to the students. And so we try to do as much of that um, as we can, get engaged alumni um, as as part of the experience that the um, students have. But no, you're right. And um, when I was a faculty member, um, so I'll, I'll tell you a little um, anecdote. When I um, turned 70 um, a couple summers ago, uh, my wife put together a surprise um, birthday party for me. And what she did was she invited about, and then and, and there were about 15 or 18 students that I had taught at Clark University during my first four or five years um, as a faculty member. 
um, who apparently all felt that I had influenced them in significant and meaningful ways. And about 15 or 18 of them showed up um, for this surprise party um, that my wife put together. And we spent an afternoon, you know, sitting on the patio um, in back of our house. Uh, and it was just, um, you know, one of those times when I said, gosh, I guess some parts of my life have been meaningful and worthwhile because all of them went out of their way to talk to me about when you did this or when you did that or when we had this conversation. Um, and, you know, it really influenced the direction um, that my life has taken. And they were, you know, attorneys and business people and nonprofit leaders and, um, and so on and so forth. And so it really can be just incredibly rewarding um, to have that um, opportunity um, to engage. And, and, you know, at this level, what you're doing is creating the funding, the infrastructure, so that other people can go and do what I did, um, you know, 40 years ago. Um, and you get a couple little opportunities to influence, but it's really about you know, putting the larger structure in place, supporting our faculty and our staff in doing what I had the opportunity to do 40 years ago, so that when they turn 70, um, their students will come back and uh, tell them how much they appreciated um, um, their experience with them. Well, I mean, that's so exciting and that's so fulfilling. I mean, that's got to be so fulfilling as well. Um, it was. So now, where do you see Lycoming College in 10 years? You know, that's, um, uh, well, first of all, I'll be retired by then. <laughs> um, at 72, I'm not going to be working when I'm 82. Um, but but that's something that I've really been thinking um, pretty deeply about in my last three or four years here. Um, and I've got maybe a couple years to go. Um, how to position the institution in terms of where does it want to be um, 10 years from now. Um, we've had, in each of the strategic planning processes that we've um, undergone, so we did one that resulted in a 2014 plan, then we did another one that resulted in a 21 strategic plan. Um, and we came out of each of those processes with all of our constituencies, um, trustees, faculty, alumni, staff, agreeing that being a residential undergraduate liberal arts um, institution was what we are good at um, and that we wanted to continue to allocate our resources to what we do well and compete based on what we do well, okay? But we had a pandemic um, since that, um, you know, 2021 strategic plan was put in place. I think we're still just beginning to understand the profound ways in which our culture, our economy, and our political system were um, altered by going through that um, two-year experience. We have some ideas. We can see some things. We saw the economic disruption that continued you know, well into years after the pandemic. Um, many of our peer institutions um, have responded both prior to the pandemic and post-pandemic by saying we need to diversify what we do. 
Um, and I'm sure you know that, you know, they've started some online programs or they've uh, developed a handful of um, graduate programs that they think they can do well um, or, um, you know, other opportunities um, of that sort. Okay. We're um, about to revisit at a retreat at the end of this um, uh, month with our trustees, um, do we need to think about diversification um, at Lycoming? Do we need to add majors, which is another thing that go outside of the liberal arts? Um, and, you know, I um, that has to be a um, consensus that is not just involves the president, especially one that's not going to be here 10 years from now, but involves the trustees and the faculty. Most fundamentally, those two constituencies, those are the two constituencies that have long-term relationships um, with an institution. Um, so what if it were up to me, I would say, let's continue to compete on the basis of what we're really good at. Let's continue to invest in that. Um, and do it even better. Yes, we can add a, a major here or there that reflects new knowledge. Yes, we can add some more sports teams. Nothing wrong with that. Um, but but let's continue to invest our resources in undergraduate, residential, um, liberal arts education. But we'll have to see where those constituents decide we should go. Well, President Kent Trakti, hey, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. I feel like we could talk all day. So thank you. Yeah, we, um, it's been a fun conversation. I hope I've given you something worthwhile to integrate into uh, the podcast that you're going to put together. Um, and, um, you know, are you going to do podcasts with each one of your interviews? Or are you going to multi, are you going to blend them together into one? How are you doing it? Gosh, I, I, I love that idea about blending them into one. And so we we keep them separate right now. Okay. Um, but I'll tell you something. It, it you know, you, you, I always feel like it's our guests, ju just like you have today, that provides the great thought leadership. I mean, I feel like I feel like I have the easy job. I'm asking the questions and trying to navigate, you know, the flow as best I can. But but you know it's interesting because you know I um we we have entertained the idea of you know bringing together you know even little snippets of of answers to questions and maybe a top ten you yeah. know challenges in higher education or what parents should you know really are really concerned about or asking and kind yeah. of starting to blend all of them together so maybe in the near future we'll do something like that right now we keep them separate but I I do I do like that idea a lot. By the way, I do read Plexus on a regular basis. It's one of the daily emails that I receive, and I often read several of the articles. I think you guys do a good job. Well, excellent. Well, thank you so much. I, I appreciate it. All right. So um, make me look good, okay? <laughs> hey, you did that all on your own, so thank you. All right. All Have right. a good day. You take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for joining the Plexus Presidential Podcast Series. For more information on the series, please visit us at plexus.com forward slash solutions. Thank you.